I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a special guest for you. Ooh. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Erin Brown is a full-time emergency clinician at Huntsville Veterinary Specialist in Emergency. She graduated from Auburn University Veterinary School in 2010 and was in practice for 13 years before transitioning to emergency medicine full-time about a year ago. She is obsessed with reading and movie nights and her family, and she likes to collect special animals that she brings home unannounced to introduce to her husband as their new family member. She has a passion for self-tanning, fitness, buffalo chicken dip, champagne, and horseback riding. She believes that she is a cross between a scary northern woman and a southern cheerleader. And you never know which one you're going to get. <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brown. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. So what was your journey to emergency medicine? We're going to refer to this more of as a pilgrimage, I think, as opposed <laughs> to a journey. So... It's an interesting one because I feel like it actually goes a little bit opposite of most people. So I practiced uh, general practice for 13 years and the last 10 years of it was actually part-time. I mean, I worked three days a week. I didn't work weekends, kind of living the dream. Um, and then in the meantime, I started doing a little bit of uh, relief work, just random Saturdays or Sundays at Huntsville Veterinary Specialist in Emergency. And I would go in there and I mean, you know, I think I've been described as like a ferret on cocaine as far as my personality is concerned. I mean, and when I would go in there, accurate, I, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, come I, on. Yeah. Yeah. I can you're confirm. Either a, you're either a ferret on cocaine or you're a retired greyhound in emergency medicine, <laughs> which is why I think Ryder and I get along so well. Which one am I? Not the ferret on cocaine. Not the ferret. I'm going to tell you that right now. Did you, so I'm the Italian greyhound? You are the beautiful, retired Italian greyhound. <laughs> we did have an amazing extern yesterday ask us how long we've been married. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I'm like, I don't happen. know, sweetheart. How long have we been married? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, the more I spent time in the ER, uh, the more I realized it was honestly like where I wanted to be and I enjoyed it so much. But the other half of that is I think tied more into uh, veterinary medicine as a whole. I think I really witnessed and was exposed to a lot of the shortcomings of our industry as far as um, burnout, culture, fatigue complicated clients, pay, all of that. And I, I had this kind of window of opportunity to potentially do something about it. Um, you know, I love being a vet and I feel like that's a big part of my purpose, but I honestly feel like now a bigger part of my purpose is hopefully in whatever way I can impacting my environment around me and trying to change a little bit of some of the negatives of our industry. 
um, in regards to the things that our staff has to deal with and go through the culture and all those things. And so it kind of was a, a beautiful uh, moment where I had the opportunity to, to do what I think I was meant to do, but also to make a difference in some of the negatives that plague our industry, um, even in the small way that I could. What do you see as the unique challenges of emergency medicine? Staying out of rehab is one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair. Uh, Physical and uh, mental. Mm-hmm. Uh, every yeah, type of rehab. Uh, mental stability is another one. Um, to, per, this is a personal thing for me. One of my challenges is empathy. And I'm going to, I am not an empathetic person. I'm just going to blankly state that. Um, I was raised by a single Northern mom. We do not do a lot of feelings. Um, We are pretty blunt women. And so one of the things, not just with clients, but also from like a managerial standpoint is taking a step back. And especially when people come into the ER and maybe they haven't been educated on things like vaccines or they've not been educated on heartworms or educated on why you don't feed your dog a cheeseburger, not automatically jumping to the assumption that they are not good pet owners, but having a little bit more empathy on the side of maybe they just didn't know. And so coming at it from a a place of a little bit more compassion, which I think is a, you can be an ER vet and have compassion. I, I, I honestly believe that. I think that you can come in and really educate people, but in a kind, loving way, but also from a managerial standpoint, having compassion from the fact that every single employee has a different personality type. Every employee has a different sensitivity level in their body. And so being a little bit more empathetic to each individual person and their their particular scenario. But that for me has been my biggest challenge is I, I've got to listen more than I speak. Emergency medicine presents unique challenges when it comes to that perspective taking. Um, because, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that many of the cases that I see on my emergency shifts might not even have a regular vet that they see. So it it could be that they just don't have the knowledge base um, and they're coming to the ER because it truly is an emergency last resort situation and they don't have any other place to go. Yeah, it really is. And I think our our gut instinct is, is when a puppy comes in who's six months old, who's not been vaccinated and has got parvo and is dying, you automatically want to assume, why did you not get vaccines? And I, I do agree that like, Yes, it should have been done. But at the same time, when you've got a family and a kid sitting in front of you who really do love their dog, it's not that they don't love their animal. They just might not have either had the finances. They might not have had the education, any of those number of things to happen and to step back for a minute and say, okay, what can I do in this situation to still provide them aid without getting mad at them? You know? Absolutely. And uh, I think that, as you pointed out, depending on your individual personality and background, that ability to pause and and take the owner's perspective might be a significant challenge. Um, mm-hmm. But even if it comes easily to you or you're pretty well-practiced at it, that ability for perspective taking can become exhausted. I think recognizing it and, and being very purposeful about how you approach cases is a good hmm, policy to have. Yeah. And and implementing that in staff too, like try to really diminish like negative talking about 
things like that and, and really trying to come at it as in how can we help these people with whatever they've got to work with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Any other particular challenges that we need to mention? There's so many challenges, Dr. Kreider. <laughs> so ER medicine in itself, um, other than just me personally, my, my struggle with empathy, because um, I really believe that winners cry on the inside. But like for me, a lot of it is is really physiological issues. Um, my circadian rhythm is a, a big deal with it. You've, you've got to get used to bouncing between nights and days, which can be very difficult sometimes. And really establishing how you're going to be able to do that as an individual. I've kind of come up with a, a pretty decent routine for me that works for me where I can go between nights and days um, and and still manage to have two children and a family and things like that. To me, that actually, you know, my husband says that I am grumpier when I work nights than I mm-hmm. am when I work days. He sure. says he can tell a major difference when I work nights versus days. However, finding whatever it is that works for you, I think is super important because that's a big part of ER medicine. Um, I think another portion of ER medicine that can be a little bit difficult is dealing with the financial aspect of it. And this is just, I think every single veterinarian, if you look at a case and you know you can fix it, you want to, right? Like you want to fix it, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to be able to do that for free. I mean, there's still staff members and families that rely on you for salary. There's still bills to be paid and drugs to buy and equipment to buy and pay for. But to me, one of the challenges of working ER is things are going to be more expensive in the emergency room. Blanket statement, that's it, period. Um, And having a case where you know that if they could, if they could handle some of the financial aspects, you could give them back a potentially healthy animal and not being able to do that because of those constraints, which is why I think, you know, I'm I, I'm a huge advocate for health insurance for pets. I think it's such a smart thing to do because it takes away that boundary of our ability to help an animal versus not based on money. And I think that's always going to be thing that plagues us. I don't know if there's a good answer for resolving that. Um, I think, you know, just offering options and doing the best you can is the best you can do. But that's something that I always struggle with is I know I can help it if I had X amount of resources. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And one thing that I've appreciated in my, well, uh, I've been a vet for 15, a little over 15 years now, but I've been in the industry for like 25. Right. So like um, from the mid 90s to now the level of care that's available has Im- just skyrocketed, right? A- yeah, astronomical. Like, it's, and, like a, it's like human medicine. Yeah, and so it's like, for me, this existential question of where's the line, <laughs> you know, between the care that we offer, the care that we insist on, and what the client can can pay for, and... What I've noticed is that as our collective ability to provide advanced care increases, my my personal ability to kind of hit a very conservative plan might decrease over time, um, where it's like you might have medicine only, basically hospice type care. Yeah. Or this really big thing, but the middle ground sometimes is a little bit unaccessible. I jokingly say this, but I mean, I mean this in in all seriousness, that there is 
sometimes that I have to go, and I don't mean this in a negative way to, to what I call ghetto medicine, which is where I can't do what I really want to do, but I know that what I'm going to do is not going to hurt the animal. It's only going to possibly help or provide something to the animal. So there are times that I have to drastically like reduce what I would really want to do and bring it down to scale and just it's humbling sometimes. It really yeah. is. And but at the same time, you know, you know you're not hurting the animal in the long run. All you're trying to do is do something positive and worst case scenario you end up back at the quality of life decision if you have right. to. So no, I mean there's many a times I have to to really kind of I got to dig deep and like humble myself in that area. Do you have any um suggestions on communicating to the client that you know if they can afford what services you're recommending and you have to kind of go dig into your 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 bag of tricks and try to figure out something that will band-aid it how to communicate to that to them that hey this is not necessarily the best option it might help to try to prevent any communication issues say if the client comes back and like you were supposed to help my dog and now it's dying again what what happened yeah yeah no i'm i'm pretty clear on those in the room so essentially great example let's talk about Say a person comes in and they have a parvo puppy and that parvo puppy is not necessarily dying, but it's sick, right? It's lethargic. It's vomiting. It's diarrhea. And these people are like, I have 30 quesadillas to my name. And I'm like, awesome. Okay. 30 quesadillas. I've got 30 quesadillas to work with. So I'm like, okay, ideally this is a deadly virus. And I just, I blanketly state that I'm, I'm pretty blunt when it comes to what a disease is and what it does. I said, this is a deadly virus. It can absolutely tear apart the GI tract, leading them to sepsis, leading them to having horrible hypoglycemia and dehydration and losing proteins. And they can kind of go down the hill. But what we can do is, you know, we can do subcute fluids. We can do some, you know, intramuscular or sub-Q injections or an IV injection while it's here in the building for us, I cannot guarantee at all that this is going to equal what is coming out of your pet disease-wise. And that is a big thing for me is the teeter-totter. And I use that phrase a lot. There's a teeter-totter in every disease. You've got the totter or the teeter of the disease and then the totter of the treatment. And you can't always balance those out depending on what the owner can do. So in this case, the parvo may really outweigh what we can do treatment-wise, but can we maybe attempt to level it out over a few days of some sub-key fluids and maybe some injections of them coming in that might work within their 30 quesadillas? Maybe. So I'll offer sub-key fluids for a few days, come in, or we can even go out to their car and do some serenity injections or some antibiotic injections, whatever will work within that case to try to provide that animal with what they need, but also telling them, I cannot guarantee that even with all the amazing treatments that we can do, IV fluids, and I'm even going to give you back an animal. I can't guarantee that even with this conservative treatment, I'm going to get you back an animal. Like there is no guarantee, but I can tell you right now that this is how I know how to treat it. And this is going to give your pet the best outcome. The next step down may not give the best outcome, but it's going to give them something to at least fight with. So everything's a tool in your toolbox. Like Everything gives that animal a tool to fight that disease with. And you can have a strong toolbox and they may not make it. You can have a weak toolbox and they may not make it. You can, there's a whole variety of it. And I think honestly, as long as they're aware that every time you remove tools from their toolbox, 
it, it kind of takes away their ability to fight it, then, but you're still giving them something, right? You're still doing something for them. You're still giving them something to kind of come at that with. They at least know that they're trying to help their animal fight in some way, shape, or form. And even though they're not giving them everything that they could, they're still giving them something. And as long as everyone's aware, that's kind of how I communicate it is, you know, I mean, you do the best you can. And I, I also advocate for clients' quality of life. If they can't afford something and it's going to really stress them out and this animal has got a deadly disease like parvo, I've got to also advocate for them and what they can do. And so I always kind of treat things like a teeter-totter or a tool in the toolbox. And I kind of try to use those references um, in regards to how I, you know, approach cases and uh, diseases. Um, and then, you know, more serious ones, I'll literally tell them we're fighting an uphill battle. And if we want to keep fighting it, we can fight with everything we've got, but I may not give you an animal at the end of this. I can't guarantee that, but we can at least give them the best fighting chance. And so I think just being honest like that, and I, it's hard to say, but I think it's okay to tell owners that like, you, you can't guarantee them something at the end of it, but you, you're going to stick by them and you're going to stick by their pet until the very end if that's what they want to do. And I think it's okay to, to blanketly state that, that you're on their side and you're going to get everything you got, but you can't do anything more than the medicine you can do. And some of it's up to the animal. I like that. Yeah. Does this mean we're going to have to change our, uh, our cupcakes on the podcast to quesadillas from now on? <laughs> Well, we can do that, or we just be like, hey, today we went out to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> Whatever yeah. type of food. We'll just mm -hmm. pick a different food for each episode from now on. I think that's very yeah. appropriate. You had yeah. three plates of French fries. That's right. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give baby vets that are interested in emergency medicine? And get a good counselor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. It's probably true. You know what? Honestly, though, like, I think so many times as vets, we're quick to go on like the defensive of certain things. Like, what are you thinking? You better, you know, do this first or do that. I honestly, personally, for me, I think emergency medicine is an excellent gateway for new vets. I do. I think that you are, if you are in the right location with appropriate mentorship, you have the ability to gain a skill set so quickly that coming out of emergency medicine, you can do whatever you want to do. And so for me, my advice to new vets wanting to go into emergency medicine is be intentional about your interviews of where you want to work. Make sure that you are being very clear that you need mentorship, not just mentorship as in like, I'm available, but they will be in that building with you, guiding you, helping you there for questions. Um, a couple other things that I think are super important with ER medicine is expectations of work-life balance, which I know y'all are passionate about. I'm incredibly passionate about it. I honestly feel like there has got to be a balance between working emergency medicine and being able to have some time off to decompress and do the things that you love. So how much are they expecting you to work? Like you've got to ask those hard questions of what, what am I expected inside and outside of the hospital. Um, when I'm outside of the hospital, are people going to be contacting me? So I think really to me, it's about making sure you've got good mentorship and that you've also got good management who respects work-life balance and also boundaries and asking those questions right off the bat when you're interviewing for your career. But I feel like ER can be a fantastic place to start if you do it right, because you get so much exposure 
to so many different cases that you're going to have like an amazing like skill set coming out of that, you know? I agree. I think that there is substantial room for young vets to come straight into ER. And um, I do agree that there has to be good mentorship, though, because unfortunately, I have seen and heard of certainly circumstances where young vets kind of get thrown to the wolves in a situation and that can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I absolutely think that in a, in a well-mentored situation, there's absolutely room for brand new and young veterinarians on the ER. Yeah. And they're super skilled. Like mm-hmm. these new vets coming out are like, they, they are so knowledgeable in all the new current medicine. They're eager, they're excited and they want to channel that into something. But the problem is, is that a lot of times they want to channel it to their own dismay. They want to work and channel and work and work and work and work and work until they're burnt out. And so a lot of times what they need is protection to allow them to channel that energy, but also to tell them when it's time to slow down and stop. And I think as an all, as a profession, we're not always super great about that. Like being able to recognize when it's time to say, especially to these younger vets, not to abuse them and to tell them when it's time to take a break, but they have got so much wealth and knowledge and energy that I think they bring a different dynamic to the workplace. They excite everyone. They make us want to learn. They make us want to educate. And I think it's overall amazing for a workplace to have interns, externs, new graduates in there because they bring a whole different level of like eagerness to the profession, right? I think so. Absolutely. Because I, I can remember, <laughs> I can remember graduating and being like, yeah, let's go. And even my just physical capacity for like burning the candle at both ends when I was in my 20s and 30s is much different than as a person in my 40s. Like it's changed. It's a different level. And like, (laughs) but they need people to teach them how to do that from an early start, because what's Mm -hmm. the point of having these, these amazing, smart, brilliant vets coming out, especially into an ER field where we really need them and then destroying them in three years. Like that is not... Like that's not going to help the profession in any way, shape or form. So I think especially as, as, as I'm sorry, middle aged, is that what we're going to call it? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that forties are for when you're in your forties, that counts as middle age. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I hate to tell you that with you at all. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm sorry. Like it, it's, I feel quarter age-ish, maybe, Quarter third age, age sure. if you will. Um, but I feel like it's our responsibility to like take care of them and help educate them because we didn't have it in our profession and look what happened. We've got now this huge wave of vets with major issues. And, and I feel like if we can do a good job of like protecting those younger vets, it'd be great. But I, I really think that coming out, they need to be very cognizant of you know, do you have hands-on-hands mentorship? Are they, how long are you going to have the mentorship? Are they respectful of your boundaries? Are they respectful of your time? Like, I think those are big questions to ask, especially if you want to do emergency medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and one challenge to that idea of being a mentor, not just medically, but being a mentor and serving as an example, a role model of how 
to set boundaries in your professional life. One challenge of that is that many veterinarians who now find themselves at the time of life to be a mentor have not established that for themselves. (laughs) So we have to first learn how to set boundaries for ourselves because if you if you can't recognize it and set it for yourself, how can you mentor the next stage? Yeah. And that's the problem is that when we haven't been modeled something, it's hard to model something that we don't know exists. And so I think recognizing it, and there's nothing weak about saying that what we've done as a profession is wrong because it is like what we've done as a profession has not been ideal. We haven't kept up with the constant increased um, pressure of our career in many different forms. And it's okay to step back and say, Hey, we haven't necessarily done this right. Let's try to backtrack, get ourselves pulled together so that we can do it better for the next ones. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with humbling ourselves and saying that at all. Like there's it's, it's growth. And that's what our profession is about is we're going to be constantly growing and changing and evolving. And I think that there's nothing wrong with with saying that we need to do this a little bit better. And I, I hope we can for the future ER events. Me too. Me too. We need people with this mindset and management. Oh, crap. Hang on. It's gig. We need people with this mindset and management so support staff can also benefit. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and yes, support staff I'm needs fine. to <laughs> support staff needs to you know also establish boundaries and yeah, it's just a little harder sometimes when management is like, no, you you must work an extra four hours and and you must you know answer when I call you after you've already worked five. Yeah, days. I just I don't like that. Like I mean, and Greta will tell you, like I'm pretty adamant. Like if it's time for you to leave, go. I don't care how many patients are on that board. Like. We'll manage it, but it's your time to go and you're not responsible for that. It's the end of your shift. And I I think respecting people's personal time is super important. I think respecting their private time, like we don't call staff after hours, like it's not appropriate to call them when they're not on shift. We might send out a group message that way if someone's on shift and they're up, they can like reply back. But like, if they're not up, they're not expected to answer us. And I think that's super important the goal is to change a small portion of what I can to do, but I think it's, it's important. I do think it's important for management to start opening their eyes a little bit and realizing that um, we need to really respect the mental, emotional, and physical wellness of our staff. Because if you do, it's going to really change the way that they practice medicine. I think it starts with them but you're going to see a trickle down effect of how they then interact with clients and patients, how they do their job. It, and it really revolutionizes it, but it's got to start with their wellness and happiness. And then I think you'll see a lot of major issues within the actual hospital itself. You'll see it differently and, and it'll change and evolve and get better if they're happy. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I think, of course, I talk about self-care and compassion, fatigue and burnout and things like that all the time as part of my professional life. And I will say that I think that it, all of those things are very important. Knowing your values is important. Setting boundaries is important. And we focused a lot on that. The thing that I'd like to see the profession as a whole sort of add in to this conversation about mental health is the responsibility of management in yeah. this whole thing. I mean, are people responsible for caring for themselves and letting people know their needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But there's also a secondary responsibility 
which is management, listening to those needs, being present with employees in the moment and being non-judgmental, and then attempting some sort of accommodation or compromise. Um, and I feel like that part of the conversation gets left out a lot. Yeah. And I think I'm going to be honest. This is, this is how I have felt about management. When I took on management, I took responsibility for my staff like that. They are, they're my staff to be responsible for. It's not just managing the hospital and the ER, which I only really manage the ER. It is, I accepted responsibility for my ER staff and their well-being. And it's like being, it is like being a mom. I mean, I, I'm going to use that reference because when I had kids, that was my choice, right? I chose to have children. I chose to take responsibility for them. I chose to, to uphold their well-being and care. I did the same thing when I walked into management. Like that, that is my job. And part of one of the, I think the things that I enjoy so much about ER medicine now is the ability to not only look after and care for my ER staff, but also the ability to encourage us to be a little bit more of an empathetic portion of veterinary medicine, because if they see empathy towards them, so as a manager, if I am empathetic towards their needs, their struggles, their all the things that encompass that, they are much more willing to be more empathetic to our clients that come in so that we have got a better interaction with ER clients than maybe the cutthroat that it's been known as in the past. Because I really, my goal is for people to come in and I want them to feel like they are seen, heard, and cared for just like they would in their regular veterinary practice. I want that. And if my staff feels like they are seen, heard, and cared for, they're most likely to then replicate and demonstrate that. So it starts with us at the top and it trickles its way down like a cascading effect. There is no other way to do it. I, I, I'm very clear on that. Like I, I feel like if it starts at the top and it goes its way down and that's the only way it can be in our profession. And so um, I, it's a passion for me to like be there for them because I know if I'm there for them, they're going to be there for clients. They're going to be there for me. And, and it's going to be a good, beautiful balance between the two. Yay. Yeah, we're trying. <laughs> so, I mean, don't you need special training to be an emergency vet? <laughs> no, you need a therapist <laughs> is what you need, JJ. <laughs> no, you don't. Okay, so there is a difference in an ER doctor and a criticalist, right? Like a criticalist is boarded and certified and handling literally the critical on the brink of death patients. You do not need any additional training to being an, an ER medicine doctor at all. Like, no, you, but what I will say, what you do need is you need um, confidence. You need <laughs> a great mentor um, and a solid set of cojones. Like it is a different realm of medicine. You are moving fast. You are thinking quickly. You are dealing with clients who are super emotional. They don't trust you. They don't know you. So I think you do need to have a solid, balanced mindset to be able to walk into a room of people you don't know and their animals dying and like communicate and comfort them at the same time. 
So it's a different type of like specialty. I feel like if you want my honest opinion, you've got to have a mindset of critical thinking. You've got to have a mindset of fast thinking. And then you have to have a mindset of like empathetic thinking because you already know these people don't know you and don't trust you. How are you going to get their trust and how are you going to talk to them in a way they can understand you when their animal is on potentially the brink of death? And so I feel like there's a special skill set of people, but no, you need a good therapist and a good set of cojones. (laughs) Exclamation point. End of statement. I like it. I would say the only thing that I would add to that is even if you're introverted, okay, because I'm introverted. What? Um, yeah. Shocked. Yeah. <laughs> even if you're introverted, you you need to be able to at least put on a mask of being a people person while you're there mm-hmm. to interact with clients because they are, as you said, stressed. No one goes to the ER because of a no big deal situation. Even if it really is a no big deal situation, clearly it's a big deal to the client or they wouldn't have come. Yes, that is right. And so um, you have to kind of, I think, you know, turn turn up the volume, maybe two clicks on your personability, your um, your charisma, (laughs) you know, just a little. Honestly, like one of the things I'll say, and I love this about like the balance between you and I is like I'll come off more as like a. And this is where my Southern cheerleader comes in is, you know, I'm peppy. I'm, I love talking to people. I love, you know, I'll console, whatever. But one of the things I love about Grider is that she takes a, a good moment, even in an emergency room to educate people. And that is, I've had so much feedback on the fact that someone took time to explain things to ask questions to answer their questions. And I think that even as an introvert, you do that very well as far as you just take the time to hear them. And I think in emergency medicine, if you're an introvert, they don't need you to be peppy all the time. They just need you to listen and they need you to talk to them and give them like, you know, uh, honest feedback on the situation. And that's what's so important. It's just the communication aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, th- thank you. That's uh, that's so kind and such a good thing to hear because I try really hard to uh, be educated. <laughs> <laughs> I tr- try really hard to to educate clients and 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 people that I come in contact with. It's one of my passions. Um, but yes, I I don't think that you have to be extroverted to thrive in veterinary medicine, certainly, or even in emergency specifically. And there's a way to um, practice active listening, reflect the client's feelings and things like that without being, you know, um, super duper, I love people all the time. I think just bringing a kindness to it. I think introverts actually have a little bit of a up on extroverts in this area is that y'all can read a room better than we can. So you guys go into a room and you can actually read the vibe and read the mood of it better than an extrovert. We come in like a wrecking ball and we're like (laughs) sunshines and sprinkles and rainbow shooting out of our rear ends. And y'all come in and you take a moment and you actually like 
feel what's happening in the room. And I actually feel like there is a benefit to that in emergency medicine that people need because you can empathize and feel the emotions better than those of us barreling in like a squirrel on crack, right? Um, I <laughs> Well, I will say that that there is a relationship most likely between introversion and being a little bit more sensitive to the vibe, if you will. Um, but that might also come down to like a learned hypervigilance, <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> which we could talk about for a long time. But there, there's several key factors that play into being hypervigilant all the time. Um, but yes, if you're a type of person that can take the temperature of a room when you walk in, um, that will serve you in some ways in this profession. Um, but it also could be very damaging in your personal life. So please see a therapist about that. <laughs> yes, we we strongly advocate therapy in yes. <laughs> uh, veterinary medicine. It is good. It is not uh, means that you're weak. It is do it. How can general practitioners best support their emergency clinics and emergency clinician peers? Well, you just hit on a hot topic. Okay. So are we ready for this? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So number one, I want to say that at least at our practice, our goal is to support the general practitioner. Like we have got zero interest in taking clients or demeaning any veterinarian at all. We want to be a extension of our general practice. So that is a, a, a one of the things that I think is a big deal for me. As far as what they can do to help support us, I think um, number one, supporting us after the fact, meaning that when we have seen one of their patients after hours and not every veterinarian is aware of the situation, what the patient looked like at the time, what the, all of those things, understanding and communicating that it may not be essentially what it looks like when the patient then presented to you, meaning that like it, I want both of us to support each other. So if I saw a patient and it maybe wasn't as critical and then maybe down the road, it, it maybe was, or, you know, we treated it differently than you wanted to treat it, still supporting each other in that and understanding that unless you want to be a general practitioner that wants to be on call 24 seven, you can't always have full say in everything that happens with your patient if we're seeing it after hours. Like there's going to be different doctors who practice things differently. And ultimately our main goal together is to stabilize and treat that patient and supporting us in that as opposed to maybe stating that we did something wrong, if that makes sense. Like I want to make sure that we are a cohesive vibe between GP and emergency, even if you don't necessarily agree or would have done it the exact same way. No throwing under the bus. <laughs> Correct. And I, I'm, I'm big on that. Like, I, I will not throw a, a vet under the bus. I, 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 I wasn't there during their exam. I wasn't there during their communication. There could have been things said and done that I was not aware of that could have changed things. And so I, I, I'm not going to sit there and, and state that someone did something wrong when maybe they didn't under those certain circumstances, if that makes sense, you know? Um, another thing that we really appreciate a lot is communication. So if you're sending someone over to us, give us a call, like, let us know what's coming. Give us a briefing on what's happening. Um, 
try to get everything situated to where that patient comes to us as equipped as they can, as opposed to a blocked cat that came into your clinic at 4 a.m. that you're now sending to us at 6 p.m. Or 4, I'm sorry, 4 p.m. that you're now sending to us at 6 p.m. Yeah, (laughs) that you're now sending to us at 6 p.m. because like you didn't have the time or ability to like unblock it. And like just communicate with us because we'd rather you send it to us earlier so we can get to it than waiting on it and then just throwing it at us, if you will. Um, And then I think too, just recognizing that our staff is tired. Um, right now there's 2,200 pets per veterinarian as a national average. Okay. And that's a GP. If you think about emergency medicine, that's even more patients per veterinarian right now at Huntsville Veterinary Specialist in emergency, we see like a four hour radius, Tennessee, Birmingham, all the way around. And we have a significant volume. And I understand that maybe you would not have made your patient wait that long. Maybe you you would not have done things a certain way, but understanding that our volume is different than your volume and that we're not just seeing a volume of healthy patients. We're seeing a full volume of sick patients. And I think just the empathy from vet to vet in that, to understand that we're being bombarded with critical and sick patients. Yes, some are going to wait. Yes, some are going to have, you know, different treatment protocols than maybe you would have done. But understanding that we are really, as a profession, doing the best we can to serve our area, considering the less amount of us and the larger amount of patients and working with us on that. I think just the empathy in that aspect would be more than enough. Um, We also like Starbucks gift cards. So (laughs) that would be beneficial as well. Um, But I think just the overall acknowledgement of what we are providing and doing so that GPs can also have a quality of life and be home with their families. Um, And we'll take over those hard times, those holidays, those vacations that we can't spend Christmases with our kids, but realizing that, that there's a trade-off for that, that you can't micromanage your patients and have us working on Christmas day. Right. So I would really love like there to, there to be a more empathetic and more cohesive relationship between GP and ER because all we aim to do is to be a, an extension of them. And we never aim to throw anyone under the bus. And I, I hope the vice versa. You know, I will say that before I had ever worked any type of emergency shift when I was in general practice, I maybe fell into the trap a little bit of being Absolutely. judgmental because yeah. I did not understand. No, and I'm then the same I. Way. <laughs> I started working, you know, in in my first experiences with emergency would be like 12 hours. You're the only doctor, you know, and you see everything from the little stuff like an ear infection, the moderate stuff like uncomplicated vomiting and diarrhea all the way up to ruptured hemangiosarcoma, stabbings, gunshot wounds, hit by car, strangulations, heat stroke. I mean, in sometimes three or four of those bad things. At one time yeah. where you're like literally co- working on two codes at once sometimes. Yeah. And and then when you like survive that type of shift and then have to field a phone call or a complaint about someone whose dog with an ear infection had to wait for four hours, it kind of makes you just maybe want to snap a little bit. <laughs> like, I think I'm going <laughs> to, my eyes twitching, you know. Like, yeah. like, um, but I, I used to have that 
thought, you know, I would be like, oh, I wish they had done this. I, you know, why didn't they think of X, Y, Z? You know, what I would have maybe done stuff different. But now that I'm in it, I'm like, I was wrong. <laughs> Never mind. No, <laughs> for sure. I, I'm the same way. Like when I was in GP for 13 years, I remember getting those reports back and I'd be like, WTF, right? Like what mm-hmm. were they doing? Sure flip side to where I'm at now. And literally, uh, Grider and I worked together on Sunday. Yeah. And after you left Grider, the board, these were the exact order. Both legs broke, blocked cat, bleeding internally, severe anemia transfer. And I looked at that board and I'm like, awesome. Like, fantastic. This, oh, Parvo was at the bottom of that. Parvo was at the bottom. (laughs) And I just remember sitting there, but I not only have I gotten to know the ER vets that I used to judge, and I'm going to, I'm going to state that uh, very vulnerably, but like I've gotten to know them as people and how they practice medicine and their hearts. And I will say 100% I was wrong. As well. Like I, as a GP, was wrong in how I viewed and looked at these ER doctors. And now that I know them and I've been in their shoes, I have nothing but respect and love for what they do and what they sacrifice to be there when other vets are closed. And I I just, all I can ask is that maybe take a moment, even though you don't know what it's like to be an R vet, but like take a moment and just respect it because it's not easy. I remember very vividly this one case when I was back on GP and it was a little dog who um, was like a Monday morning transfer from the ER. And I was about to go meet with the clients, you know, before they dropped off. And I looked at the little dog's chart and it had been admitted for vomiting and diarrhea. And it was a small dog a young dog, a female dog. And when I looked at the lab work, it had a sodium to potassium ratio of like 19. And I was like, this dog's got Addison's disease. Mm -hmm. And my initial feeling was anger and frustration. Why the heck didn't they catch this at the ER? You know, like what the hell? But I didn't, of course, I didn't say anything like that to the owners Um, I just went in and said, you know, hey, after looking at everything, um, you know, I I feel like this is a concern. Let's send the test out because at that point the dog had been stabilized. So I had that experience. And then as an ER vet now, I'm like, well, I know why they didn't catch it. It's because they were probably dealing with 500 other things. Mm -hmm. And instead of me being like these a-holes over here didn't catch this clearly Addisonian dog. My thinking process has changed. These dedicated ER vets were available to treat the dog on triage when it was crashing and stabilize it. They were able to run tests that they could to get the most information possible over the weekend so that the dog showed up on my doorstep at 7.30 a.m. on Monday morning with a uh, stabilized IV catheter already placed owners who were prepared to leave the dog for the day. And I had lab work to look at. It's not that they missed the diagnosis of Addison's disease. They facilitated it by saving the dog and then providing me with the information that they could provide me with. Absolutely. And for me, that was a really big 
mental shift that I had to go through. Absolutely. Um, but I think it was a valuable one. Yeah. I think it's so smart. Um, and, and recognizing that, like, and I think we could, we could get off on this on a whole different topic, but also recognizing the fact that as ER vets, we understand that you are busy. We understand that you are overrun with appointments and you are already stretched thin. We are not trying to add to your burden. We are not trying to add anything, which is one of the reasons that we are as a ER vet realm trying to shift a little bit to like help general practitioners that more being whether we're opening for urgent care or whatever that may be. But like we understand that like you have a full book schedule of annuals, puppies, sick appointments. And then we also have the ones that are coming to us and maybe coming back to you that are super sick. Like we're, we want to help you. We want to help manage your burden and your stress. We want to help manage your overloadedness and, and we're doing the best we can to facilitate that. Right. Like we, we want to not make it worse on you. So that's our ultimate goal ultimately is to make it a, a better environment also for them. So Dr. Brown, uh, speaking of young vets in ER and the importance of mentorship, you have developed a program at HVSC called the Accelerate Program that aims to do just that. Can you tell us more? I would love to. So I think just kind of going back on our conversation of looking at the mentorship of young veterinarians, especially in the emergency realm, um, they would get thrown into these 13 plus hour shifts without any guidance or structure. And if you're going to burn a veterinarian out, there's no better way to do it than that, right? Like just throwing them in, nothing, no one, go. So one of the things I really aim to do is I want to make our profession, especially in regards to emergency medicine, a little bit more mentored and structured. And so what I wanted to do this year, and and this has just been a kind of a long-term thought of mine, and I even thought about it in GP, but then when I went into an emergency medicine, it became more clear that I was actually a little bit more adept to ER as well, um, was develop a program that not only did we support them as far as mentorship growing in emergency medicine and and being a veterinarian, but also all the things that surround being a veterinarian. So we've brought in um, licensed counselors. So we're working on mental health, burnout, boundaries, things like that. Um, we have got a um, accountant who will work with them as far as if they've got, you know, student loans that they need to work through. So the financial aspect of that. And what the internship essentially does is it is a very gradual release to being a well-rounded emergency veterinarian. So for the first two to three months, they are working alongside uh, a seasoned ER vet. Um, They're not having to take on their own caseload. They're not having to worry about anything other than learning from the cases, hands-on experience, things like that. And then the next two to three months would involve them seeing some of their own cases, but there's still going to be a veterinarian who is there with them to answer any questions. So their cases are their own, but they've got someone to go to at any point in time. 
flash for the next two to three months, uh, releasing them to have maybe a couple shifts where they are working a little bit more solo, but still having someone to reach out to if need be, and also working a portion of their shift with a Seasons of Fantastic Questions too. And then finally, towards the end of the year, um, fully being able to work a shift on their own, but also having the equipment to handle how to triage, how to handle, how many cases can you take at one time? Because that's a big thing. Every vet's different. I can take on 700 to 2,022 cases at one time because I'm a psychopath. That's not normal for people. It's okay to be able to do two to three cases at one time and stop there, regroup, then take on two or three more cases. So also helping them adapt to how many cases they can truly manage at one time and be able to facilitate that to where they're able to communicate with owners and handle the animals and things like that. And so really it's a program that's designed to like encompass what it would be like to be an ER vet, but to gradually ease them into that as well as equipping them with the mental, emotional, and psychological things that are going to come at them as an ER vet, as well as the financial things that are going to come at them, especially if you come out with student loans. And so I think all of that together is just going to provide a better, well-rounded veterinarian. And my hope is that they're going to want to do it long-term. Like emergency medicine is so amazing. It's so fun. And I think that if they have the right equipment available to them, that it's an amazing career. It's It can be very lucrative in some areas and uh, mentally stimulating. And I, I think that if we do it right, it's going to really draw more vets to the emergency realm, which is what we need, but doing it in the right way, right? Where we're not just like throwing these sweet little young ear vets to the wolves and saying, good luck, or they're going to burn out in three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the program is very structured uh there is like a even a like a a written protocol for the program Mm -hmm. yeah and all of that assistance with um pretty competitive pay yeah it is and one of the things that we love to do is we also integrate in that they rotate through the specialties so like they're going to rotate through internal medicine. They're going to rotate through surgery, neurology. So they're going to get to spend time one-on-one with these brilliant specialists and really hone in on those areas as well, as well as working outside of the practice, doing spays and neuters for some of the local rescues, um, even dentistry, things like that, because I think it's important to maintain those skills. Like you need to maintain your surgical skills. You need to maintain your dental skills. So working with some of the local practices in the area to be able to also offer basic care that is even like just routine, because I think you need to maintain those things too. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic program. Uh, How can veterinary students apply? One of the things I recommend is, um, and we, we do a lot of this these days, is I would love to see them coming in as externs. We've got a great extern program at HVSC. So if you're in your, depending on what school you're at, third or fourth year of vet school, coming and doing an extern with us, like see what it's like to be at HVSC, see what it's like with our specialty and our emergency. And if you feel like that's a great place for you to be at, I would like you send application to, I mean, my email is Brown at hvscvet.com. Uh, and I love to hear from you, but we really encourage them to come as externs because you can see what we what we operate like. 
And then determine whether that's where you want to spend your first year out of vet school with. Um, and I feel like there truly is a place for every vet at every location. Even if we're not it, that's fine. You will find your place. But I think that you really need to go in and see it and try it out to see if that's where you're going to fit right at. Is the Accelerate program exclusive to new graduates or can younger vets apply who have already graduated? Yeah, at this point in time, I am open to anyone. I'm going to be honest. Like I want anyone who is eager to learn and move forward in emergency medicine to apply. Like it's not aimed just to new graduates. If you really feel like that is somewhere that you want to be and you would like to enter into it, I encourage you to apply. Um, Even if you've been in GP for 15 years, like I was, like I would not have known any different 13 years ago that I would be where I'm at now. And you might be in that same situation where you've been doing GP for however many years and you really want to do ER. No, like all ages, graduates, whatever works for them, I think is very acceptable. Awesome. Well, that's about all the time we have for today's episode. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah, it was great. It was a joy. (laughs) If you have stories, cases, questions, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. It sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>